one of the challenges that we face as a country is the challenge of how to provide good health care to everyone. The rising costs of health care are astronomical over the last number of decades, and it's affecting everyone. It's affecting individuals, it's affecting couples, it's affecting families with young children, it's affecting retirees, it's even affecting the practice of medicine, it's affecting governments, and it's affecting businesses as they try to provide good health care to their employees. After all, good businesses understand that healthier employees are more productive. And it's just over the last couple of decades that we've started to see real change in how businesses offer health care. You see, traditional health care plans have always focused on uh, you know, putting the cost and the burden on those high-risk employees. Are you a smoker? Are you overweight? Do you not exercise? Do you enjoy an alcoholic beverage now and again? Uh, that's going to increase your costs. And it's only in the early 2000s that there was some groundbreaking research from D. Eddington of the University of Michigan. I found this great opinion piece on the Huffington Post that said this, uh, it was D. Eddington's study that shifted the approach to wellness. He found that people don't have consistent health behaviors or consistent health outcomes. In other words, many people move freely between high risk and low risk during their lifetime, even within a given year. And that's amazing, considering that our health care plans are annual plans that we sign up for every year. And we can change from high risk and low risk in the middle of a year. And what they discovered was that an entire group of employees, the rest of the employees, weren't really encouraged to take care of themselves by businesses only targeting and approaching high risk employees. They were ignoring the others and employees weren't taking care of themselves. So a new set of solutions was launched in the mid-2000s that took an entirely different approach, the article said. Uh, this new approach considered not only Eddington's research, but authors and writers and doctors such as Daniel Pink, B.J. Fogg, Dr. Laura Hamill, and others, and they talked about something different, motivation and behavior. And companies like uh, Limeade, Virgin Pulse, Red Brick, and others started to create different kinds of wellness programs that focused on an employee's total well-being. Don't just focus on the smoking. Don't just focus on the eating habits. Don't just focus on the lack of exercise or the drinking, but focus on why. And they started to ask and offer ways to reduce things like stress, give you better sleep patterns, uh, give you better job satisfaction at work, uh, give you better financial health, budgeting programs, and things like that. And, and there was more. They even went so far as to provide things like healthy snacks and healthy meal options at the workplace, in the work cafeteria, or in the lounges. Um, they allowed them, and they promoted employee activity groups, and doing different things, including making executive leadership participate and set the example that helped create lasting change in some of these companies. And according to the opinion piece, <clears throat> these changes are seeing valuable results. There was a study posted in the January issue 
of the Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine that listed that companies that worked on this, that had high well-being among their staff and employees, outperformed the 500 largest U.S. companies listed on the S&P stock index, the S&P 500 index, by 235% over a six-year period. So, while there's no issue that healthcare is a problem in our country and that there's a lot of contributing factors as to ways that it's going to take to solve it and it'll still take years and years of conversation, what they discovered is this. Sometimes we fight the wrong battle in order to try to solve the problems that we have. We've been learning this in our series called Living Hope. And as we conclude that series today and our look at the letter that Peter wrote to a number of persecuted Christians who were scattered all around the north edge of what we would call Turkey today, he gives them a rousing reminder that when you're dealing with incredible suffering for your faith, and when you and I are dealing with incredible suffering for our faith, make sure you're fighting the right battle. In other words, make sure that you have the right understanding of suffering. A couple of weeks ago, we shared something that I think is groundbreaking and something that Christians, especially in North America, struggle with. And that is this. Suffering, sacrificing, and having people respond negatively to our faith is not something that we should run from, but that we should rejoice in. When we have to pay a price in order to follow Jesus, we should rejoice in paying that price. And we have a hard time doing that as Christians because we have a hard time when we suffer in the first place. And so Peter says, You've got to make sure that you're fighting the right battle when it comes to suffering for your faith. Just like the healthcare industry, like businesses wanting to cut costs and providing healthcare to their employees. They know they need to do it, but it turns out that they may have been fighting the right battle. And so they've started to make some adjustments that has helped see their businesses improve. You and I, we need to fight the right battle in order to see our view of suffering improve and our lives for Jesus, our walk with Jesus, our Christianity mature and improve as well. Why do we need this? Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, why don't you uh, turn with me in them to 1 Peter chapter 5 or just follow along on the screen. In verse 8, Peter says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was headed outside into our backyard in the, uh, in the you know, the nighttime 
and I was putting the cover back on our big green egg. It's a new barbecue that I got as a present for graduating from my family. I love it. It's just a fantastic barbecue and slow cooker. I just enjoy it, but it takes a long time to cool down. So once we're done barbecuing, I can't just put the cover on, you know, at half an hour, hour later, it takes hours. So I turned on the back porch light and opened up the patio door to walk outside. And I saw a skunk coming up to meet me. He was interested in the smells that were being produced by the cooling of the barbecue, and he wanted to see if there was a little snack for him. And so here I was coming out to go to the barbecue, and here was this skunk that was coming up the stairs to go to the barbecue. Now I startled him, and he startled me. But I immediately just, nope, I'm out of here, and went back inside, slammed the patio door shut before he could you know, project his, you know, surprise onto me or anything that we owned. And thankfully, he just scooted off the steps and ran underneath the deck and went on his way. I hope we haven't seen him since. But it's that kind of surprise that Peter is talking about when it comes to describing the devil as a roaring lion. We minimize the fact that we have an enemy. Because sometimes we do stuff to ourselves. There's, there's no question. But you and I have an enemy. And that enemy is looking for prey to devour. And he walks around like a roaring lion. Imagine what it would have been like to walk out on my patio and to see a lion coming up the steps who roared at my entrance. I think I would have done more than just walk back inside and slam the door shut. <laughs> it would have been a horrible feeling. I, I just would have been in absolute, absolute fear. And that is what the devil tries to do to us. Through roaring like this, he tries to get us to react out of fear. Think of the way that the devil treated Jesus when Jesus was suffering. In, in the stories of Jesus' temptation, when he's fasting and asking for God's will for his life, when he's asking for God's empowerment for that plan, he's so desperate to live for God's will for his life that he fasts. He gives up food so that God knows this is so important to him that he will want this over food or drink. He's hungering and thirsting after God's plan, so to speak. And Satan shows up and he just says, you know, if you're the son of God, why don't you tell these stones to become bread? And in the same way today, the greatest enemy that you and I will ever have or ever face comes up to us and says, you know, if God really loves you, if God really has a plan for you, why does he let you go through this suffering, through this refining? Isn't there a way to have what God wants for you and to not have to go through any kind of pain in life, any kind of refining, any kind of change, any kind of persecution? And he wants to do that so that we are devoured. In other words, we walk away from faith. That's the tension that Peter is trying to solve. If you don't fight the right battle, if you don't fight the right enemy, if I don't do that, if we don't do that as Christians, we walk away 
from the best life that God has for us. And so he tells us, stand firm against this plan, against this devil who would love nothing more than for you to be devoured by your need to just medicate the pain, get away from it, rather than see what this kind of persecution that God is allowing you to endure as a way to refine your faith. He says to stand firm. And he says there are two things that you need to remember in order to stand firm. Take a look at verse 9. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is going through the same kinds of suffering. You can stand in faith because you have a heavenly family. You have a heavenly family. You remember... When you remember that you have a family that is with you, you can remember that you have people who will stand with you. And that works for faith. That works when people are being persecuted for their faith. It works when people are suffering to know that people are with you. And for the heavenly family, this actually works in a couple of ways. The one is that you're part of a worldwide family. This family is all over the world, Peter says. That no matter where you go in the world, you are not alone. That was one of the reasons my family and I could move from Canada and come to the United States and leave all of our blood relatives behind with a three-month-old child starting a new job, figuring out a new culture, new systems of, of banking and all the things that we needed to do. Because we had support, because we had a family, no matter where we went, we could always find a church of people who loved Jesus, who taught the Bible, and sought to live out the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. In other words, no matter what you're going through in life, you're never alone because of your local church. There's always someone who is available to walk with you in whatever moment you are facing. But secondly, it also means this, that because of the sheer number of people all around the world, as part of this heavenly family, you have people who are, who are experiencing or who have experienced what you've experienced. You aren't going through something unique in your life. And that means that you can learn from someone who's walked through what you are now walking through. When my wife, Krista, who is adopted, was looking for her birth parents, she plugged into an organization called Parent Finders. And one of the benefit of Parent Finders was that it had support groups. And there was one volunteer in one of those support groups that had given up her child for adoption early on in life and later had reunited with that child who came alongside Krista and Krista tells me that one of the greatest benefits of being part of that support group, talking to that volunteer, and being part of that organization as she was searching for her birth parents was this. She was helped to know that it would be okay 
no matter what the outcome was of her search. So Krista had that encouragement that Peter is telling the persecuted Christians that they have because of the church family. And, and Peter, he, he knew this firsthand. I mean, check out the way that Peter closes the letter that he writes in, uh, to these Christians in chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. He says this, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God, that standing in suffering and persevering in suffering really reveals God's grace to us. So stand fast in it. Stand fast and persevere. He had someone write the letter. He had someone help him to encourage these brothers and sisters. He wasn't alone. And she who is in Babylon, the church in Rome, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You're never alone. Those persecuted Christians had other persecuted Christians who were still in Rome, even though this letter was likely, possibly, written at a time when all of the Christians and Jewish people were being kicked out of Rome. And they felt like they were being kicked out of the Roman culture as well. That was one of the reasons why they, they felt this level of persecution was because they were being canceled by the Roman culture. And Peter says, you're not alone. This kind of thing is being experienced by other people all around the world. And what you are going through, whether it's persecution for your faith or suffering in general, other people have suffered in the same way you have. And you know what kind of a support it is to have someone come alongside you and say, I've been there and there's a way through. And that's one of the benefits of being part of a local church and being part of a heavenly family is that we have the opportunity through things like growth groups to open our lives and to say, here's what I've been through, but also here's what I'm going through and give encouragement and receive encouragement in no way that just meeting online like this and and, and watching a video feed or meeting on a Sunday morning allows us to do. It takes that life-on-life, one-another moments. And then as natural friendships develop, we start to see those kinds of things happen as well, where we are encouraging to one another to stay true to God, even if it's costly, that God has a plan for the persecution that we face, for the suffering that we face, for the sacrifice that he is asking us to give. Now, I know that, especially in churches, we can be quick to try and fix each other's pain. We don't want people to feel persecuted. We don't want people to feel suffering. I, I, I understand that. And, and sometimes there are people who are so focused on their, fa- on their pain, who are so fixated on what they are suffering that they just seem to keep 
raising the bar over and over and over again and saying, well, that happened to you, but my situation's much, much, much worse. And they never seem to want to make progress. They just want to have pity in their lives. I get that. There's, there's both sides where people are just fixers and people who are just addicted to pity. But that doesn't change the fact that when the church gets this right, it can be a real encouragement to continue to stay in faith. And remember that the enemy that you have is looking to get you away from your faith. So Peter says, lean into other people who have that faith. And one of the ways you can do that is to remember that you have a heavenly family, that your, your pain is not unique, that no matter where you go, you can find a Christian you can find a church that is encouraging to you. You know, one of the things that this uh, pandemic season of isolation, six feet of social distancing, wearing masks all the time, has really revealed to me and really revealed to us is that just a little bit of encouragement goes a long way. A phone call, a letter, an email, a thank you card, a note, setting up a video chat and having a meal with someone that you can't normally see can go a long, long way in helping people who are struggling with sacrifice and suffering and persecution. It's because you have a heavenly family that you can stay true and resist walking away from your faith. So Peter says, never forget that you are never, ever alone. <laughs> but, but that's not the only thing he says. He actually goes on to say that you not only have a heavenly family, but that you have a heavenly father. Take a look at what he says. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. You stand in faith when you remember that you have a God who will redeem you. He has redeemed you and he will redeem you. You see, God wants you to share in the same kind of glory that Jesus received when Jesus rose from the dead. He rescued, he redeemed, he honored, he exalted Jesus. And he wants to share that with you if you hold fast. And God is coming. God will rescue you. It seemed like all was lost for Jesus when he died. His disciples scattered, but three days later, Jesus was back because God raised him from the dead. God redeemed him, restored him. And now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and Jesus has been given the name that is above every name, that it, his name, the name of Jesus, Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he invites us to share 
in that glory all because of Jesus. You have a heavenly Father who will redeem you, and it will be a redemption that will last for all eternity. You know, one of my favorite scenes in uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy in the movies that came out recently was a scene from The Two Towers. The fellowship had all but broken up, and it seemed like the ring bearer and his companion were lost, and the other two hobbits were gone and destroyed. And the remaining three members of the fellowship, Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas, were wandering through a forest trying to see if there was any hope but hope was failing. And then all of a sudden, this mysterious rider in white showed up. And these companions felt threatened. They drew weapons because they, they thought it was one of their enemies, Saruman, the white wizard. But it was not Saruman. It was their friend Gandalf, who had assumed the title of the white wizard. He was no longer Gandalf the Grey. He was Gandalf the White. And when they realized that it was him, they said, Gandalf. And he said, yes, that is my name. I have come to you at the turn of the tide. In other words, now that the time is right, now that the moment is ready, now that it's ready for our, our, our situation to be reversed and it needs to be redeemed and it needs to be restored, I am here. And God does exactly that in a way where he receives the most glory, the way that he receives the best way for him to be revealed, for him to help, he shows up at exactly the right time that he means to. So you can trust in that. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that you can't wrestle in faith. Jesus himself, before he went to the cross, said, if there is any way, Lord, take this cup from me, take your wrath from me, but not my will, your will be done. And in the Psalms, we see all sorts of records of pleading with God for his favor to come and to, to restore Israel, to restore the psalmist, to restore the writer. But we can trust, like those psalmists did, like Jesus did, that God will rescue, that God will redeem that God will restore. So never forget that no matter what you're facing, no matter what persecution, suffering, sacrifice you're in, you are never abandoned. The greatest enemy you will ever have and ever face wants you to think that you've been abandoned, that you are alone, that you are unloved, that you're church family has abandoned you, that your father has abandoned you, and that is not the case. So stand firm by remembering two things. You have a heavenly family. You have a heavenly father. And that means this. You can stand firm because you will never stand alone. Here's some questions for you, for you to discuss this week in your group, with your family, and with those that are watching with you. Question one, 
How does remembering that you have a heavenly family who has had similar experiences help with suffering? Question two. How does remembering that you have a heavenly father who will redeem your suffering help with suffering? Question three. How can you be an encouragement to others to stand firm in their faith? Question four. What would be an encouragement today to you to help you stand in your faith? Let me pray for you. Jesus, there are times when we hear the whispers and they seem like such good advice. Just just walk away. Just give ourselves a little bit. We don't have to suffer so much. We don't have to give up so much. We don't have to endure so much to follow you. But those are not your thoughts. Those are the words and whispers of a roaring lion who wants to devour us. Lord, would you help us when we are in times of suffering for our faith and suffering in general, that we have a heavenly family, that we have a heavenly father, and that we can stand because we will never stand alone. Would you help us to remember that? And would you help us to stand in faith, we pray in Jesus' name.